Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle 24 with me, Markus Hippi. Over the next 60 minutes we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monocle 24 with highlights from our studios here at Midori House and from around the world. This week, Monocle's Andrew Miller recaps what we know now that we didn't when the week began. We learned this week that France had changed its flag. A bit. Well, sort of. After a fashion. Bit from column A, bit from column B, and so forth. Plus, the president of Chrissy's, Dirk Ball, discusses what it takes to oversee one of the world's most prestigious auction houses. So, predating a sale, of course we have that network that communicates with collectors. And these people say, oh, if you happen to have this and that in your sale, let me know. But um, things that get out of fashion, we know the next morning. All that and much, much more over the next hour here on The Curator with me, Marcus Hippie. We round off the week with a recap of what we know now that we didn't seven days ago. With this week's What We Learned, here is Monaco's contributing editor, Andrew Muller. We learned this week that France had changed its flag. A bit. Well, sort of. After a fashion. Bit from column A, bit from column B, and so forth. Come on. <laughs> Just get on with it. We learned that the blue in the red, white and blue had been somewhat darkened, at least in the tricolours flying over the LSE Palace, and that this appeared to be a policy decision rather than the consequence of a mishap with the washing machine. But what, we wondered, could it all mean, other than an excellent excuse to use the word vexillology in a radio monologue. What? That's just uh-huh. what? 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 That's not a word. What is that? Can you repeat that? Glad you asked. It's the study of flags. Anyway, we learned, after looking into it a bit, because we're good like that, that the blue had been lightened back in the 1970s on the orders of then-president and still holder of the record for the most French name in France, Valérie Giscard d'Estaing, who sought harmony with the shade of blue on the EU flag. The darker blue was the original colour on the standard brandished by the mob who had stormed the Bastille, declared the rights of man, bumped off Louis XVI, Marie Antoinette and in due course each other, and sundry such revolutionary stuff. As for what lies behind the alteration, we learned that some rune readers believe that President Emmanuel Macron is signalling a pre-election pivot to nationalism and or offering a subtle rebuke to Brussels, while others suspect that maybe he just thinks the darker colour looks nicer, but possibly most significantly we also learned that the change was actually made like a year ago and nobody even noticed until just now, so maybe what we've learned is that it's possible to overthink things. Which, moving seamlessly along, is something that certain sectors of society have insisted on doing since the advent of freely available vaccines against COVID-19, by which we mean that thinking vis-a-vis the subject could probably have stopped around the point of, hey, a freely available vaccine against COVID-19, cool, and certainly well before, this is clearly a nefarious plot concocted by Bill Gates, George Soros, and, I don't know, the surviving members of the Jackson 5, to implant humanity with 5G tracker nanobots or whatever mad drivel I've just read on my dingbat uncle's Facebook page.
In New Zealand, we learned this tendency have been making their case in part with renditions of the Kamate Haka, as performed in the background by New Zealand's rugby team, the All Blacks. And we learned that the Ngati Toa tribe, custodians of the Kamate, are just not having its appropriation by their foil-hatted fellow citizens and have instructed them to knock it off, or words to that effect. We also learned, for what it may be worth, that the All Blacks themselves are fully vaccinated. Getting the vaccine is very easy. We've all had the two doses. It protects us all and it keeps us together. I'm not doing it for just me. And they did not appear to be suffering much in the way of ill effects when they ran over Wales the other week. Hey, come on. We also learned that the consumption of Western civilization by idiot whimsy continues apace, specifically in this instance by the launch of a television station aimed at dogs, or more accurately, at their limitlessly gullible owners. Dog TV, as it is imaginatively named, is not, almost regrettably, intended principally as a vehicle for pun-based programming of the order of Barks and Recreation, Game of Bones, or Brooklyn K99. Look, you bought the ticket, you take the ride. Dog TV is rather intended to provide Fido with something to watch when left alone in the house. The project, we learned, makes assorted claims of scientific rigour to justify the subscription fee, but we, for one sideways look at the news monologue, believe that you could hold your hounds enraptured attention just as easily with a biscuit in a glass case. Happy to help. And slash but, we learned that the money we've just saved you on your dog TV subscription might enable you to pay an actual dog for Madonna's old house. No, really stick with us. Gunther VI, a German shepherd, is the current beneficiary of a trust established by eccentric... Yeah, let's go with eccentric Countess Carlotta Liebenstein, who died in 1992, leaving her vast fortune to her incumbent pet, Gunther III. Gunther III's heirs have since enjoyed quite the life. Gold collars, private jets, not that they care about any of this because they're dogs. The trust which manages the Liebenstein loot on behalf of Gunther III's successors bought Madonna's Miami mansion a couple of decades back for US $7.5 million and is now attempting to unload it for just shy of $32 million. Gunther, incidentally, sleeps in Madonna's former bedroom on a red velvet bed. So we learned that Madonna has been outwitted in the real estate racket by a dog, and that perhaps she should henceforth be known as the... Material Girl. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks, Andrew. Next is something else we learned this week, and to a story that has very much dominated the news in the UK. It began as a single drop, one British Member of Parliament breaking the rules of paid advocacy. By Wednesday, it had become a full-scale deluge, with allegations of sleaze flooding the headlines. The Prime Minister Boris Johnson introduced new rules to limit MPs' second jobs and endured three sessions of tough questions from all sides. But is it enough to rebuild shattered trust? For Thursday's edition of The Globalist, Monocle Semenelson was joined by Terry Stiasny, political journalist and author. Emma began by asking Terry to bring us up to speed. 
I think it's almost three weeks now. The government has turned something that would have been a, a sort of a minor incident in Westminster into a massive crisis, really. So one of their number, um, the former M- minister and now former MP, Owen Patterson, was found to have broken the rules in the Commons on who he was taking money from and who he was doing work for. So he had clients, including a company that, amongst other things, carried out COVID tests. There was a report which would have suspended him from the House of Commons for a month. The government then decided that instead of just accepting this report, they were going to not only oppose the report, but get rid of the whole system, the Standards Committee and the Standards Commissioner, who's independent, that scrutinise MPs. Now, although they got that vote through at first, there was then such an outcry that the government had to go back on its decision to tear up the Standards Committee. Owen Patterson, the MP, then resigned. And it's just sort of been a a constant pile-up of of mistakes and, and political miscalculations which has left the Prime Minister being criticised in in Parliament about this. He's been criticised by his own backbenchers. He's now had to try and bring in, sort of leave the standard system in general, as it were, but bring in a whole new system for what MPs are allowed and not allowed to do as their second jobs. It's an astonishing situation now where we had... What people find quite difficult to get their heads around is that we've we've seen how many thousands of people die from COVID. It's more than 150,000 people here in the United Kingdom. That did not seem to touch the Prime Minister's popularity. Yet this constant barrage of allegations of allowing your friends to get deals, to allowing MPs to have second jobs, to really you know, not stick to the parliamentary rules seems to be something which brought Boris Johnson yesterday to not one, not two, but three sessions of absolute pummeling publicly. Yes, and I think one of the things that was interesting, so one of these sessions was the regular, the weekly Prime Minister's questions, uh, where he faced a real onslaught from the leader of the Labour Party, Keir Starmer. And the way that Keir Starmer in particular managed to tie all of this together was to say it was a question of trust. And so he was trying tying this together, not so much with COVID, but also with things like what he had promised to do about the rail network in Britain, for instance, and just really trying to push this point that in his view that, you know, you couldn't trust the Prime Minister's word, you couldn't trust the Prime Minister to, to play by his rules, you couldn't trust him to kick out someone who was misbehaving. So I think it is this question of trust and this question of, indecision, making decisions on the hoof and sort of changing those decisions at the last minute, which is which is proving to be quite damaging. And, the, and part of the problem here for Boris Johnson is that he's got different sets of MPs criticising him. So he was quite contrite by his standards yesterday in that he was saying, well, you know, he had made a mistake about the case of Owen Patterson, the MP who had broken the rules. But it was clearly, it was apparent from the evidence he was given to the liaison committee that he he really hadn't looked into any of the detail of the situation before he made decisions about it, which, again, is is Boris Johnson's sort of default setting, if you like. He tends, he's not, you know, by any stretch of the imagination, a details person. And the fact that he was making big decisions on the basis of this or having people make decisions for him on the basis of fairly limited information is one of the things that is, is coming back to bite him. One thing that has really alarmed lots of people who are Boris Johnson supporters is that the 1922 committee, which is a sort of a committee of, of, of senior conservatives, he told them that he had crashed the car on an empty road. Nonetheless, the MPs present said that the mood was sour. Someone said that he looked weak and sounded weak. Now, as soon as 
the Conservative Party decides that its leader is unelectable, that is always the end of its leader. The Conservative Party, yes, indeed, can be extremely uh, brutal when it comes to getting rid of its leaders, much more so than the Labour Party normally ever is. I think, again, one of the dangers for Boris Johnson here is that he's got lots of different types of Conservative MPs on his back benches. Owen Paterson is probably one of the more old-school Conservative types. He'd been around for, as an MP for a while. He was a, a long-standing Brexit supporter. Um, you look at one of the people who was unhappy about this idea about sort of banning MPs' second jobs is a chap called Christopher Chope who sort of pretty much objects to everything that comes up any piece of legislation that he doesn't like. There's those kind of old school Conservative MPs who don't like these attacks on say their colleague Geoffrey Cox who had been working as a barrister in the Caribbean for instance. They are not happy. Also, but the new type of Conservative MPs, the ones who Boris Johnson brought in after Brexit in his big election victory just two years ago, many of whom represent seats that weren't traditionally Conservative in the North and many of whom have small majorities, they are really upset about this attack on, you know, this idea that they put a part of a sleazy party that can't make good decisions for the people that they were elected to represent. So you've got different types of Conservative MPs, both of whom might now be unhappy with the Prime Minister, depending on what decisions he takes in the near future. The political journalist and author Terry Stiasny speaking to Monaco's Emma Nelson earlier this week. Staying with the world of UK politics now as we look back to last weekend's edition of Meet the Writers. Robert Peston is a regular on British television screens. Before he became the political editor of ITV News, his career included stints as a journalist and presenter for the likes of the Sunday Telegraph and the BBC. The author of multiple non-fiction books, he has now turned his hand to fiction, although the theme doesn't stray too far from what he knows. On last Sunday's edition of Meet the Writers, Robert spoke to the show's host, Georgina Godwin, about his first novel, The Whistleblower, a thriller centred around a lobby journalist at the time of the 1997 general election in Britain. In this highlight, Georgina starts by asking how the political lobby actually works and how the relationship is between journalists and politicians. So one of the things I, you know, I thought would be interesting to people is to sort of talk about a bit about the sort of secret bit of of politics and in the 90s a lot of the way that the relationship between the press and you know the government worked was explicitly secret I mean it was nuts I mean I because I I before I joined the FT I'd done sort of very competitive sort of business journalism or and then I, I said did these investigations and then I go into the lobby which is the, you know the term for the political journalists who sit along a corridor believe it or not the corridor is called the Burma Road and um, actually I might just if I've got it I'll, 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 the Burma Road is 700 miles of hard road built at tremendous human cost through the mountains of southern China it is also what lobby hacks call the corridor of journalists office on the top floor of the Palace of Westminster how the two became twinned is lost to memory, though it might have been the invention of a legendary press gallery secretary who had a habit of attributing military ranks to all of us. In fact, I was there at the time. Anyway, there is this shabby corridor called the Burma Road where actually we all still congregate, right? And in those days, the Financial Times had a, uh, a room. We were all tapping away. Actually, by this stage, there were still some typewriters. By this stage, we had sort of pretty basic micro, sort of network microcomputers. 
two things about it were interesting and some of this has changed. There is a bit more sort of proper competition. But in those days, the, it was a sort of cartel. There was amazing collusion between different newspapers. And, you know, there would be a huddle uh, most nights between the political editors to work out what the story of the day was. The story of the day in the run-up to the 97 election was normally, you know, how shit John Major had been in a particular way that particular day. I mean, the barra, you know, the tide turned around the time of Maastricht and there was an extraordinary... I felt very sorry for John Major, actually, because th- there was this extraordinary pack mentality to humiliate him over a, over a period of of time. The other aspect, which um, is not so well known, is there were these two lobby briefings a day, right? One in Downing Street and one at the top of a tower in the Palace of Westminster. And it was actually when you joined the lobby, you had to sign up to a set of rules. And one of the rules was you were never, ever, ever allowed to talk in public or admit to the existence of these briefings which were given by the Prime Minister's press secretary. So twice a day, the Prime Minister's press secretary would tell you, you know, whatever the Prime Minister wanted to reveal, and he would also take questions, and then it would be written up as though somehow what had been told were sort of tablets of stone handed down by God. And of course, the reason it persisted for so long is because it was great for the journalists, because it you know, it was like being in a guild. They had privileged access to information. It was very easy access, as it were. Once you were in the guild, you didn't have to work for this information, but it made you seem terribly knowledgeable. It made their papers seem knowledgeable. And it was great for the uh, government because anything that was said was deniable because it was all off the record. Uh, so there was no responsibility taken by government. And there was one little detail of all of this which sort of gives you a flavour of these rather, you know, unsatisfactorily sort of incestuous times, which is in that little tower at the top of the Palace of Westminster, when we arrived just before four to set up our meeting, all the chairs were turned the wrong way around. And the reason the chairs were turned the wrong way around is because immediately before us, the Parliament Masonic Lodge would sit there. Um, True story. And uh, so this, this was a world of sort of Freemasonry and shabby deals. Mm. And how much collaboration then is there between journalists from different papers? Is there a kind of agreed line? So to be clear, that kind of incestuousness really doesn't, uh, you know, there was a time when there was a sort of agreed line back then. That doesn't happen anymore. There is much more intense competition. It's partly because there are so many new, you know, in the old days there were... I don't know, five papers that sort of mattered, six maybe. The advent of the internet means there are, you know, way more political journalists than there used to be, and there's proper competition. Um, Now, it's not to say that when you all sit in the same place, it doesn't, from time to time, create a slightly unhealthy group mentality, and I think that probably is still an issue about, you know... But this is true, this is, this is not a particularly UK issue, it's true of, you know, the travelling White House press in America. It's, it's so broadly, the one thing that if you're a political journalist and you have access, you know, to any parliament anywhere in the world, you've got to fight against is groupthink. And I think there are lots of journalists, and I hope I'm one of them, who do try and think independently, but there are pressures going in the other direction. Mm. The author and journalist Robert Peston speaking to George in a Godwin for last Sunday's edition of Meet the Writers.
Staying in the political realm now for highlights from the latest episode of The Urbanist. Now, are our urban centres ready for a whole new category of migration? As the frequency of extreme weather events increase around the globe, the push for many to leave the places they call home is getting too strong to resist. On The Urbanist this week, we look to the Pacific, a region that will be at the forefront of the battle against rising sea levels in the years to come. Kiribati, for example, may be one of the first nations lost to climate change. It sits at an average of two metres above sea level, and many of the islands which make up the country have already been completely submerged. Julian Gender is a member of parliament for the Green Party of Otearoa, New Zealand, and has served as a spokesperson for the party on climate change. Her unique path to politics saw her migrate from the United States, bringing with her a background in urban planning and transport. Julian joined Monocle's David Stevens to discuss New Zealand's leadership in the Pacific, how the country can help mitigate against climate change, and the stigma that can be attached to words like refugee. Well, one, definitely we should be focusing on mitigation and limiting the damage. But we also know that a certain amount of global heating's already baked in, as it were. And so we're going to have to deal with that. And that's going to make some parts of the world much less habitable than what they have been for humans. So definitely like our first focus would be mitigation and doing our part as a country to reduce emissions, which I'm sad to say we are not yet doing. And that's largely because the Greens have been campaigning for this for like 20, 30 years, but there's been no real action in that direction for so long that even when we had a coalition government who was trying to change direction, the infrastructure that we need to reduce emissions takes time unless you do really, really drastic things, which we did to respond to COVID-19. So maybe, maybe we will in the future consider more drastic actions to reduce emissions rapidly, but it's hard to see that in the current political environment. When it comes to migrants versus refugees, I totally understand that both words actually can carry stigma because in some parts of the world, you see this movement of people questioning whether people are refugees or whether they're economic migrants and that somehow that fleeing a country, (laughs) and if you're just doing it to have a better standard of living, somehow that's less legitimate than if it's a war-torn country or you're under immediate threat of violence. So I I feel like both ways there could be stigma. And I do understand that people don't want to be seen as victims of something and they want to feel empowered. And I think it is increasingly going to be a very difficult conversation politically because as you saw with like Brexit and Trump in America, in some countries, which I think arguably have less representative electoral systems, which is also a problem. There's a kind of backlash to change and to diversity and that that leads to a kind of tribalism which could lead to really scary right-wing politicians being elected and really damaging policies and a kind of rejection as opposed to an open compassionate approach that says hey we're all in this together if we'd been born in another country we would want the ability to legally find a secure safe place for our family and i think we need to emphasize and show compassion as much as we can in leadership to inspire that. Because I think most people are compassionate, but some people can be quite easily played by Facebook in particular (laughs) and have their fears twisted into something quite ugly. 
How can migrants' voices be centred in this debate? Are there already avenues to do this? How can we make sure we hear from the people that are going to be affected by this issue firsthand? Definitely. And I think particularly, you know, those people from Pacific Islands, for example, that are really threatened by sea level rise should be the ones at the forefront of the debate, but also you don't want to give them the kind of burden of having to argue for their own situation. So it's it's sort of tricky because it's like we need to center the voices, but also it needs to be those of us who are in a privileged situation, you know, and I would consider myself very privileged, right? Because I was able to migrate to New Zealand from a country that, you know, has its problems, but arguably is not as challenged by climate change as some of these other places. You talked about mitigation earlier. How can New Zealand cities take the lead in the Pacific on climate mitigation efforts? It always stuns my international colleagues when I tell them about New Zealand's huge reliance on the car. So is transport a big part of this equation? Transport has to be a massive focus and reducing car dependency is part of that. And since we have issues with housing supply at the moment, there's a perfect opportunity to address both at the same time by allowing increased density within our urban centers and investing in public transport, safe walking and cycling, getting car share to be more common so people don't have to go out and buy a new electric car, but they can access an electric car if they need one, which is, you know, all of that part of the transition away from like hyper car dependence. Arguably, New Zealand is one of the most car dependent places in the world after the United States, which is kind of shocking because we have a very urban population. Auckland actually has higher population density than some large Australian cities. I mean, pretty much Melbourne and Sydney would be the only ones that are even comparable. Yet Perth and Brisbane have Adelaide. They all have higher public transport use and lower car ownership than Auckland. At this point, we really need to be spending every dollar and everything that's left in our carbon budget on transformational alternatives like regional rapid rail, electric rail, public transport, but you can also reclaim a lot of street space to make relatively cheap, safe, attractive cycle lanes and bus priority and really increase the frequency of the buses. They are shifting to a plan to decarbonize the public transport fleet, but really it's the car fleet that needs the big decarbonization. And then aside from transport, there's buildings. Our building code's really not up to scratch. And so while we're trying to build all these houses to make them more affordable, unfortunately, we might not be building them to the highest standards we could in terms of energy efficiency. And that puts demand for electricity. And at the moment, because we've had a few dryers, we've been burning a lot of coal for electricity. I mean, not compared to other countries. It's still like 80% of our electricity supply is renewable, which is great. But as we electrify our car fleets or transport generally, as we electrify heavy industry, we need to increase renewable electricity supply. And so basically, I think it's buildings, energy and transport. Those three things together are the big urban drivers. Julian Genta there in conversation with Monocle's David Stevens for this week's edition of The Urbanist. Still to come here on The Curator, we stop by an organic bakery with a cult following from across the UK and beyond. And the president of Christie's, Dirk Ball, discusses what it takes to oversee one of the world's most prestigious auction houses. Stay tuned. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. 
Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are with the Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monocle 24, and I am Marcus Hippie. When it comes to bakeries in London, Fortitude Bakehouse is unique in what it does, focusing on natural flavours, fermentation and sourdough cakes and bakes. There are no cakes loaded with sugar or artificial flavours here, and that's a part of the magic that has given the bakery a cult following from across the UK and beyond. Dee Ritali runs the bakery and, already before it was launched, she had the reputation for pioneering the organic food movement in the UK, now Dee has finally launched her debut cookbook, Baking with Fortitude, and she joined me in the studio to talk about her cooking principles, how the way she bakes has evolved, and the importance of instincts when baking. I caught up with her and first asked her to describe the way she works. I always see it as craft baking, because it's about, with craft, people take a, it's like having a piece of wool, and some crafters don't need a pattern or don't, like, I don't need a recipe. I develop recipes because other people need to use them. But if you ask anybody that bakes with me on a daily basis, I don't use recipes. I use my hands often as weights, or I'll use the scales, but I'll make it up as I go along. Or a recipe that I've already developed, I very rarely weigh it, because I know, I just can feel it. And it's it's like anything that's more than an artist, it's about craft. And you need to be able to feel what you do. So when I put my hand in dough, I can tell if it's good or bad. And that comes from doing this since I was a child. We started in Ireland, we baked very simply because you didn't have the ingredients. You didn't have, you know, all year round. We didn't have bananas. I can't remember the first time I ate a banana. I wasn't that young. But we had lots of things like we could get citrus fruit, but only in January. Or we used lots of spices. We had lots of dried fruit, things that would sit in the cupboard. And you had to be inventive. And that's where it started. And I started when I was about eight or nine baking because that became my job in the household. So it's very crafty. I don't want things to look perfect on purpose. I'm not going to spend hours of my time trying to make things look perfect because for me, that's not the reality of life. And it fits my personality that we can, everybody should be able to share in, the, in what we do. People should be able to come in and it's a welcoming product rather than coming in and going, wow, I don't know whether to eat it or look at it or photograph it. For me, it's about food and provenance and accessibility, really, for people. But it is also about a craft. How has the style of your baking evolved? Because obviously people know you for your sourdough starters and fermenting your batters, for example, before baking. That style, did you have that already in Ireland or is it something you've learned along the way over the years? It's something I've developed because you have to be able to know how to use ingredients. That's a big thing. There's such waste in the world. In pastry kitchens, often, if they're more advanced commercial pastry kitchens, products aren't real for me. They're like sugars and glucose and colours, and which is fine. And everything's got its place in the world. I, I'm not, you know, dismissing anyone. But for me personally, it had to be about nature. And with nature, waste, you can't waste product. You can't waste butter. You can't waste milk. It's such a sin to do that. For me, personally, I feel that. So I had to find ways of using products and giving them longevity. So with butter, if somebody said to me, it's got a sell-by date, I think... So what? 
butter is a product that if you add salt to it, you can give it a longer life or you can just have it sitting there and it has a bit of a bubble and it has a particular smell. But it's not going to kill you because it's pasteurised. And so that's how I see things. It's like if people see, oh, there's a little bit of mould. Now, I don't use that in my kitchen, but when I experiment, I'll put things away for three or four weeks and I check them and I, I look at mould and I look at... It's it's like a science experiment. Does really. it always work? Um, No, no, <laughs> it doesn't. But it's for me, I've been doing this so long, I needed to find an outlet which gave me inspiration too. So I use what I know. I'm not of the ilk that's going to go down the road of trying to reinvent the wheel in patisserie. I wanted to do something which was about making the world a better place to be. Now, that sounds crazy because a lot of people, I'm sure, would just think it's just cake. But I think we need to learn methods of preserving food in our lifetime because we can't continue. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a political person. I just believe in what I do. And I saw my grandparents work in exactly the same way as I do now and have incredible longevity in their life. Both of them were in their 90s when they died and very healthy, other than the sort of old age things that happen to people. And they live like I kind of live now. I mean, I, I obviously have a bit more va to my life because I'm in London and I can fly around the world if I want to, pre-pandemic. But yeah, that's kind of, it, it was just a style that I've developed all of my own. There isn't really anybody out there that's doing now what I do. There will be, because it's exactly what happened with Patisserie Organic. When I set up Patisserie Organic, in 1998, people were not that interested in organic food. They weren't interested in permaculture. They weren't interested in biodynamics. And I just thought, well, I am. So I'm just going to do it. I don't need to follow anybody. And I was quite young, probably quite naive, <laughs> because, you know, it's a, it was a huge financial burden on me at the time. But I just did it and it's continued. It's just continued as one big experiment. But one of the reasons I do it, I really got into it in a commercial way. When I say commercial way, it's baking for other people en masse, was because I was working with a company called Fernandes & Wells, which was based in central London. And George Fernandes, who is my partner now, he at the time was looking for somebody who could bake and give his product provenance mm -hmm. and sit beside his idea of what coffee should be like or what product should be like. And that not to overtake the taste of the coffee. And they were sort of this new way of coffee. He was at the beginning of that. He was really the beginning of that. And so we had this kind of working relationship where I would have to find products that he wasn't throwing away at the end of the day. Because so many places just put everything in the bin. My products had a seven to ten day shelf life. Not through any kind of artificial method, but through crafting and fermentation. That was about 12 years ago. Now, they were the first people in London that I really worked with. And then other people started to look at it and go, OK, wow, I need to save. Because a lot of these small independents were about saving money, but also about saving wastage within a company. It's such It was a massive problem in coffee shops because everybody was selling croissants mm -hmm. and they last a day. And so they were like just putting them in the bin. I could see it everywhere. And that's really why I developed it then commercially to make a business out of it. And now you have released your book, Baking with Fortitude. I'm wondering the idea of to release a book like this. Was it something you thought about during the pandemic? Was that the right time to start writing a book? Or did you have a mission? Do you want to spread the word of this kind of baking to make things a bit more environmentally conscious in that front? I'd been asked previously about 15 years ago to do it. And I'm a very private person, in some ways quite introverted. I think what I do, because it's you get up at 4am and you work often on your own, 
and sometimes I'm the last person to leave, it makes you a little bit introverted. So I wanted people to understand what I was doing at Fortitude because not everybody gets it. I don't expect everybody to get it. The way I see it, I've been baking for 30 years of my life professionally and I can see everybody makes croissant and everybody makes sourdough bread and it's become a real hipster haven and that's wonderful and, you know, the kids love it and all Mm. that. And it's great. It's great that it carries on a baking tradition in London in particular because that's where I've always been based. But I thought, well, I don't want to make croissant. Everybody's doing the same thing. The way I've always baked and cooked has been quite maverick, I think, but I've never wanted to put myself out there. So you can be as maverick as you want in the background. Mm -hmm. But actually, if you have something to say, you need to put yourself out there. Bloomsbury had approached me a year before the pandemic and I decided to do it because I thought, okay, I really like this product. People were getting to know about it and understand the fact that what I was about more than, you know, I had to put myself out there somehow because I believe in what I do. And I also believe in the fact that doing craft of any kind is really, really good for your mental health. Mm. And I've worked for years with people with mental health issues and people from refugee backgrounds or just people who want to do something and they get a bit stuck in their life and they come to me and and I'll say, okay, I'll train you. And I've done that. I, I never or maybe once in 10 years have taken on a trained baker. And I thought if I'm going to be doing this stuff, I want other people to know that they can do it too. So it's about spreading words. It is at the really, same time. yeah. Without it being a big political issue, even though it kind of is in some ways, from my point of view, it's a very simple process that we can all enjoy if you want to enjoy it. Dear Atali, founder of Fortitude Bakehouse in London, speaking to me for this week's edition of The Menu. Staying in the world of food and drink now as we look back to the latest instalment of The Entrepreneurs. For this week's show, the show's host, Daniel Bage, spoke to David Siegel. David co-founded David's Tea in 2008, helping it to grow it into a retail giant. After leaving the Montreal-based company in 2016, he started gourmet fast food brand Mad Radish. Now he's launching Firebelly Tea, focusing on great tea, smart packaging and well-designed accessories. Here is Daniel with more. Talk to me about what you mean by bringing tea into the 21st century. I guess the most interesting thing about tea is it is rich in tradition from so many different cultures around the world. Coffee has a rich tradition as well, but it's really moved, even in the, you know, the fourth wave space, it's moved into fast and getting great things to go. But how do you sort of evolve tea and and what's your vision there? Well, I think that you're absolutely right. I mean, tea has this very rich history and it's the second biggest drink in the world, actually, next to water. But in North America, we're a coffee culture. And I think that coffee culture is corporate America's culture. It's office culture. And I think we're living in a time where we're moving away from that a little bit. Whereas coffee is for the nine to five, tea is for the creators. It's for the entrepreneurs. It's for the rainmakers. It's for high performers. And I think that it's had so many stereotypes and stigmas attached to it, whether it be overly hippie or overly feminine or for when you're sick. And the types of people that really drive things forward that are innovators, they're able to see through those stereotypes. And I think when they realize just how amazing great tea is, 
I'm not talking about basic tea in a tea bag or artificially flavored tea. I'm talking about incredible, real Madagascar vanilla instead of the extract, the best ginger in the world, the best cinnamon in the world, the best green teas and oolong teas in the world. It's just, there's so many flavors and so many benefits. And I also think with work from home, the idea of rituals is going to become more and more important. You need to take breaks when you're working at home. And we may no longer need quick substitutes for the real thing. And great tea is timeless. And I think it can really be a big part of those, those afternoon or evening rituals. Talk to me about what you are going to be launching with. You talked about creating all your own accessories, but how do you come to market with a, a brand that is fully evolved, fully formulated? Let's say, obviously, you have a, a vision for where you want to, this to go, but what do you launch with? I have the advantage of, of being the co-founder of David's Tea. So I spent over a decade in the tea business. And when I went into David's Tea, I really liked tea. And as you can imagine, I learned a lot about tea in that process of building that business. And I developed a love for it. When I left David's Tea, I parked the business of tea. I moved on. I started a healthy fast food concept that's delicious called Mad Radish. We have seven locations and we're growing it. I'm still involved in that business, but I couldn't forget about tea. I mean, I, I loved it. It's what fueled me as an entrepreneur. And I ended up becoming good friends when I moved back to Ottawa, my hometown, with Harley Finkelstein, who's the president of Shopify. And he was talking to me about how in the afternoons, he really didn't like to have coffee because it kept him up. He didn't like the feeling of it in the afternoon. I said, well, why aren't you drinking green tea? And he says, I never thought of that. I'm like, yeah, well, you know, tea releases, although it has caffeine, it's a slightly different compound than, than the caffeine in coffee. And it also bonds differently in your body and, and it releases in your bloodstream slower. So you don't get that big peak and crash that the energy is a little bit more sustained and less intense, but really nice. It still gives you a nice little boost and helps you focus. And he's like, oh, well, well, help me find some great green teas. And I just got really excited. My passion for curating tea collections and designing tea started to shine through. And I had remembered just how much I love this business of tea and sharing it with the world. And so one thing led to another. And through this process of curating the collection for Harley, I said, hey, you know, I want to start another tea brand and this time I want to do a direct consumer and who knows direct consumer better than the president of Shopify. And so we've, we've partnered on it and, you know, I've tasted thousands of teas to come up with the 20 that we're going to launch for the market. And these are the 20, these are the teas I drink. No lab flavoring, real ingredients. Half the collection is traditional teas. So tea is actually a very specific plant. It's the Camellia sinensis plant. How you process it makes it different. Of course, in North America, we call anything you put in hot and cold water that's not coffee, we call it tea. So half the collection will be blends. So there'll be teas or herbal infusions with ginger and cardamom and vanilla and almond and licorice root and orange peel and so on and so forth. So half of our collection is straight teas and half of it is blends. And we also, we hired a great designer out in New York, Joe Doucette, who really, we put a lot of thought into what this will look like on your counter and what it'll look like in your cupboard. So the storage and the display are really important. If you want to bring tea into the 21st century, it has to be modern, fresh, and has to look great. And so we designed their boxes. They're like books on a bookshelf. And we try to match the color to the color that's in your cup. And it's this beautiful color display of, of think of a, a, a line of books on a bookshelf that you can put on your, on your countertop. It stores really well in your cupboards. Then when you open up that box, inside is, is the typical Ziploc bag that you see with loose leaf tea. Of course, the vast majority of tea companies, all of them to my knowledge, 
they use foil Ziploc bags, which are not great for the environment at all. They end up in landfills by the millions and they don't break down. Because we're not using any lab flavoring in any of our blends, the flavorings tend to interact with the glues on these bags. So we're actually able to use 100% compostable Ziploc bags in our tea boxes, which is, I think, a great way forward for the tea business and one that we're really proud of. So yeah, that's, you know, I had the advantage of falling in love with tea over the course of, of more than a decade and really having those connections and, that su- and, and those suppliers and having built those relationships and that experience to be able to come forward with what I think are, are some of the best teas in the world and the accessories that are able to really enhance that experience, whether it be travel mugs that allow you to stop your tea infusion or make iced tea at the same time or be non-drip teapots or no-mess infusers or stackable teacups. We designed a beautiful, cohesive line of accessories that just make it better to drink tea. David Siegel of Fireability there in conversation with our very own Daniel Beach for this week's edition of The Entrepreneurs. Staying in Canada for our next highlight, as for this week's edition of Tall Stories, Monaco's Sheena Rossiter takes a trip to the Saskatchewan capital to see the newly renovated Mosaic Stadium come alive. It's just over two hours before kickoff at the Labor Day Classic. Fans are mulling about outside Mosaic Stadium, and the Saskatchewan Rough Riders pep band is warming up to get fans excited. For the 56th year, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders will face the Winnipeg Blue Bombers in a fierce rivalry. And these fans here, well, they're pretty serious. Well, I moved here from Vancouver, and I was kind of trying to figure out how to fit into the city. And it becomes apparent really quick that if you want to fit in in Regina, you you got to get on with the riders. So that's what I did. That's Rebecca Knowles. With her trumpet in hand and sporting a green and white Rough Riders jersey with a Rough Riders baseball hat perched on top of her head, she's about to perform outside the Mosaic Stadium with the Saskatchewan Rough Riders pep band. It's been around for more than 25 years, and for the past six years, Rebecca has been a member. She explains just how important the team is to the city and the province. How serious are Riders fans? It is, it is just to the max. Uh, for the 50th birthdays for a bunch of my friends, I got them Riders jerseys. Okay. And, you know, they wear them in like an environment that like a like a, a wine tasting night and someone would walk by them and say go riders and they were like it's like a secret club you know there's rider fans everywhere and I'm like yeah it's like the golden ticket now as the saying goes if football was the religion for these Saskatchewan Rough Riders fans then Mosaic Stadium would be the church where fans come to worship the team. The open-air stadium in the center of the Saskatchewan capital opened its doors in 2016 at a cost of 278 million Canadian dollars, and it's owned by the city. In the fall of 2016, university games were played and tested out on the pitch, and at the start of the 2017 CFL season, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders started to make the stadium their home. It's been used for other events too, 
In 2019, the NHL hosted an outdoor hockey game in the dead of winter on the field, and in 2022, the stadium will host the Grey Cup, the title for the Canadian Football League. Garth Brooks, Guns N' Roses, and Brian Adams have also played concerts here. Designed with a sunken bowl structure with a partial roof around the rim to prevent snow from accumulating in the winter months, the newly built stadium is an upgrade from Taylor Field, where the team played as early as 1921. Even though many fans are nostalgic for the old stadium, Mosaic Stadium is a nice adoptive new home, says Rebecca Knowles. Taylor Field had its, you know, a special ambiance for you know, people of Regina and uh, Saskatchewan. But in terms of having something bright and shiny and new, uh, it's absolutely an amazing facility. I'd say it's probably comparable to anywhere in the southern United States for, like, college football and just the overall atmosphere of the fans getting in and kind of getting on top of the visiting team and really rattling their cages. That's Regina local and diehard Rough Riders fan, Mike Pruden. It's, uh, it's definitely a good time, something I think everyone should experience. I think you're just born into it, being from Saskatchewan, kind of the most diehard fans around any sport. And uh, the stadium itself is just the pinnacle for football in Canada and possibly even the United States. Like, it's, it's the place to be at, for sure. Let's go Riders! Let's go Riders! Mike Pruden is lined up outside Mosaic Stadium, waiting to get into the Labor Day Classic with a group of friends. Wearing a green and white Rough Riders jersey, he sports a backwards Rough Riders baseball hat with his long brown hair poking at the sides of it. It's the greatest day in Canadian football, like the whole weekend itself. It's all rivalry matchups, and it's basically the best rivalries in the league are all, all happening this weekend, and it's, it's intense and fun and a good time. 50-50. Lifelong Rough Riders fan Crandall Suavier came in with his family from Cowess's First Nation, which sits just over 150 kilometers east of the city. And he is expecting a new experience here today. Me and my mom, my grandpa, used to watch them in the old stadium. And every year my mom always wanted the bomber games. That's the only ticket she would pick. And this is my first time coming to the new stadium. I want to see what the new stadium has paired to the old one, but I know this one's way bigger paired to the old one. And it seems like this one's better, but let's see which one's louder. As the number of fans grow in droves, the atmosphere both inside and outside Mosaic Stadium comes to life, showing that this place is about more than just sport. It's about energizing the city, and it's a place for community to gather. Monocle's Sheena Rossiter there for the latest episode of Doll Stories. We are nearing the end of the show, but we have time for just one more highlight, and this one comes from the latest edition of The Big Interview. On this week's show, the president of Christie's in Europe, the Middle East and Africa, Dirk Boll, sat down with Monocle's Robert Bounds to discuss what it takes to oversee one of the world's most prestigious auction houses. Here is part of their conversation. So, predating a sale, of course we have that network, that communicates with collectors and these people say oh if you happen to have this and that in your sale let me know and 
you speak to them and it's not necessarily about transacting. It's about what have you seen? What was the best exhibition you saw this season? Have you seen this? Did you like that? So we, we, we try to understand as a corporation what our client base is interested in to be able to, to serve them, of course. And secondly, auction is a brutal distribution system because the demand needs to be there this very second. So you put something up, the auctioneer opens the bidding and then the interest needs to be there. Um, and that means if it's not there, we are the first to know. Mm. Um, and it's a disaster because it means that all our filters, all our preparational work failed. We are very proud that the sell-through rate at Christie's is very high. It's in the 90s. So um, in a sense, that is very reassuring because we are only rewarded commercially for items we are able to sell. But um, things that get out of fashion, we know the next morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a, as you say, there's a brutal reality to that, isn't there? And the, I'm glad you mentioned the auction itself. It makes good theatre. It is, it's, a, it's a piece of theatre. A lot of that stuff's moved online, but there's nothing, nothing makes up for the being in the room, raising your paddle, all the rest of it. Have you got a particularly memorable moment, Dirk, of being in the room when something's sold? Because we're looking at the mechanics and mathematics of desire wrought in a live environment. It's an amazing thing. What, what was something where the sort of hairs rose on the back of your, of your neck? Yeah, of course I had several of these moments yeah. because when you when you when you work with a collector and and they want to buy or sell you are involved and sometimes these are relationships that are building up over over many years and decades even and so you get quite close to these people and some become even friends and then sometimes friends want or need to sell something so there is a certain emotional involvement in 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 many items or or sales of items without these items being extraordinary valuable or whatever news uh, hitting then what i absolutely adore is the story of our lead auctioneer Jussi Pilkenen, who is the man with the golden hammer who has mm -hmm. sold many more world records than any living auctioneer and um, of course so many people refer to his sale of the leonardo da vinci salvator mundi mm -hmm. painting 400 million is the bid here in the sale room at 400 million with Alex Rotter. The bid is here at 400 million dollars for the Salvatore Mundi at 400 million. Francois is out. Are you sure, Francois? At 400 million then. Thank you all for your bidding here and on the telephone to my left. And of course here, Loic and Francois. It is with Alex Rotter at 400 million. Leonardo Salvatore Mundi selling here at Christie's. $400 million is the bid, and the piece is sold. He said um, that sale room must have hosted kind of between three and 5,000 people, considered how often I hear that story that people were in the room. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there is an urban myth around that. <laughs> and, and of course, you never forget kind of your first auction. You never forget your first telephone bidding, which went terribly wrong in my case. And you have these moments of hair raising even when you remember them. It's, it's tense and exciting. It's, I guess you kind of don't know whether you're the star or the director of the programme also, right? You can get into the limelight for the wrong reasons, I suppose, in those situations. Yes, but of course, staff bidders like us, less so. It's the auctioneer and it's, it's their talents, it's their skills of reading the room, of understanding who needs a bit of pressure or time pressure, who needs to be given a bit more of time to reconsider and to inspire them to make the next step, to give another bid or not. Nice. And where do you go for inspiration? You've got such an embarrassment of riches in Germany, such a wealth of collecting and, and great historical collections there. 
public and private, obviously. Where do you go to sort of seek inspiration? Well, for work, obviously, but for pleasure. Wherever you go, when you're into art, you check out what is there to be seen. And when you're part of that world, you want to see the museums of a place. Mm -hmm. So you prepare your trip and you go to public museums. And once you enter the commercial art world, you also understand there is a second level of things you can see and places you can access for free, by the way. And so it's usually the, the, the one, two, three museums of a place and the one, two, three galleries. I mean, we are not talking New York where we have 800 galleries and of course you can't cover them. But um, And then after a while you start following artists or you start following um, gallery work and you, you follow the selection process of primary market galleries or you have a favorite museum and you just say, I, I go to that museum no matter. And so these are the places. The president of Christie's Dirk Ball speaking to Monaco's Robert Bound for this week's edition of The Big Interview. And that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Sam Impey and presented by me, Marcus Hippie. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programmes here on Monaco 24. And thanks for listening.